Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm joined as usual by my colleagues Claire Fox and David Bowden to discuss the week's news, including the ongoing EU referendum debate in the UK, what we can learn from the results of the Iowa caucuses, and what to make of the latest comments by England's chief medical officer about watching what we drink. So, David Cameron's done his, uh, as somebody described it, pale imitation of Neville Chamberlain and come back with an agreement. What do we think of that and what do we think about the referendum debate so far? Well, my entire thoughts on the campaign so far were summarised by my housemate this morning. He's probably kind of smart and pays attention to the world, but she suddenly turned to me and she went, oh, it's so annoying, they're going to hold this vote on whether we're going to join the Euro on some day that's really important to a professional thing. And she was complaining to me and it kind of had to explain that that's not really what the debate was about. But in many ways, I don't think anyone really understands what this debate is about so far. It's a, a very much a, a sense of that everything has been foisted upon this kind of long distant moment of the, the renegotiation with Tusk and Cameron's kind of sort of saying you know have this referendum and then pinning all of his kind of campaign really on sort of coming back with a deal which you know you could see early on was not you know realistically going to deliver any significant change the EU are obviously not going to view themselves as being held hostage by the UK um, and there isn't at the same time much of a you know, a sort of sense of coherence from the Believe campaign. You've got two competing kind of groups, which are the kind of the Eurosceptic Tories and more straightforward ones in Vote Leave. Um, and then you have Leave.eu, which is the kind of more UKIP sort of populist sort of force. No one's really been able to seize control of the campaign and stand for something. And there was sort of a certain truth in that Daily Mail headline today, which has taken you know, kind of a lot of flack in terms of that who will fight for... England, and that is essentially what the heart of this is. It's a debate and battle about sovereignty, and it's not obvious about what any side is kind of going to fight for in this, or kind of what European Union membership means. And it just feels as if, even in the way that people are positioning themselves, because obviously the campaign hasn't really started yet, in fairness to them, that it is going to be sort of something that is going to stumble through, bore people. It feels like there's a prospect that. You know, actually, that maybe a lot of the kind of Eurosceptics don't really want us to leave. They want to make an awful lot of noise about us and be backbenchers and make lots of noise and be in opposition, but don't want us to leave. The Eurofiles don't really want to have to fight a campaign about arguing for European membership. The frightening prospect for me is that we are, might well end up in a in a volatile situation, kind of a bit like the Corbyn effect or something like that, or like with the Scottish referendum, where we might end up leaving the European Union, which is quite a big prospect, which will have big impacts for us, without any kind of, sort of plan or any sense of a mandate. And I think that seems to me like a potential disaster. Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel as though we could stumble into any decision rather than actually have this as an opportunity to have a proper debate about Britain's relationship in relation to the EU, which obviously brings to the fore whole swathes of important discussions about democracy, democratic mandate, uh, national sovereignty, these kind of issues, but, you know, that rarely get an outing. So, I, you know, the, the Cameron deal does strike me as an epitome of the way that this has gone from being the potential for a big political debate to a shadow of what it might be. I mean, even in... So people are right to say, is that it? Is that what you come back with? So it's been reduced to something to do with migration and ripping off welfare. And, I mean, it's a very very narrow view of 
the debate even from their point of view of what what you know kind of we've got out and renegotiated so you can understand that if you're a lay person looking on, you just think, well, I don't understand what the fundamental argument's about. I just don't know what I'm rowing over or why I should get passionate about it because nobody else is. At the same time, there seems to be all this kind of heat and, like, you know, people screaming at each other, people on each side of the campaign hating each other, but then the splits on the Leave side being vicious and vitriolic. So I think that the, it becomes even more alienating from what politics might be because you're trying to work out what you should think. There's all these people who appear to be very passionate about nothing and about technicalities, about who's leading and personalities and what deals are being done behind the scenes. So it's, it consolidates the anti-political direction, it seems to me, of a kind of political elite that has got no reference to the outside world and it's interesting just finally on this point that UKIP who have prided themselves on kind of representing the non-Westminster bubble you know kind of the voice of the ordinary people have become embroiled in basically the kind of internecine warfare of the political elite court politics that they so despise they're actually at the heart of it now they're just a group of courtiers arguing with another group of courtiers about an issue which everybody else is looking on going I don't get it what's happened so that's very, very serious because it doesn't bode well for politics on this issue. Uh, well, hopefully things will improve, but as you say, that's the nature... Of, well, is that the nature of the debate or is that the nature of the presentation of the debate? Because the problem is that, you know, if there's any kind of a ground campaign going on or anybody's talking to ordinary people, we, we have no sense of that at all. I suppose it's that's an indication in its own right of the fact that what people actually think isn't really paid much attention to. In terms of what the substance of the debate is going to be about, though, I can't really see that the immigration stuff and the welfare stuff is going to last because, um, I mean, Matt Ridley pointed out in The Times on Monday, for example, that actually most people have got settled views about this. People who are anti-immigration are probably going to vote no, and people who are broadly pro-immigration are probably going to vote yes. But there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who don't give a damn about immigration particularly, and they're going to be much more concerned about things like the economy and you know, whether that, that's going to improve or get worse in, in the EU, which at least is you know moving the debate away from this. But on the other hand, we could end up with an, e- an equally dull referendum campaign as the Scots had in 2014. Yeah, well, I, what also seems interesting, and this perhaps kind of bleeds into the discussion about the kind of US elections is that it, it feels like it's driven very much by identity and that for me seems to be very striking of that you know actually when there was kind of opposition to uh, joining the European community originally when they had the referendum there was you know it was sort of famously you know the far left and the hard right were united in this because they could see that there was a common set of interests that were being betrayed on this this kind of issue what's interesting is there's no real sense of that anyone you know there there, you know there are plenty of people on the left who are or what's left of the left opposed to european union membership and there are obviously the kind of tory right there's no sort of sense that those two sides are actually talking to each other or want to kind of construct some campaign about this and this is supposed to be on a fundamental issue around sovereignty actually just about the right for us i think you would say actually if you're a democrat if you believe in democratic principles and sovereignty you could find common cause on this issue but in a way the you know the right of fighting themselves you know over a kind of variety of issues you know they have no interest in trying to engage a kind of broader group outside of that it's really about kind of ukip and sort of tory right versus the cameron crowd um and the sort of issue has become a sort of 
now vague one of what sort of sovereignty is, which is sort of, are you kind of pro-British or pro-English as it kind of is now? Or are you pro-European, which now means in today's context, do you not trust Cameron or the British government to kind of rule over you? And you'd rather kind of be ruled over by nice Europeans um, who will do a better job of everything like that. And that is the kind of real driven sort of element of the it's sort of although there are kind of real political issues that matter to people on the streets around immigration and that sort of sense of a collapse of identity it seems as if this campaign will be dominated by the politics of fear and it will essentially be driven around you know what kind of you know what kind of Tory are you effectively I think that one of the things that's galling is that every organization I've spoken to in the last month or since you know Christmas has said we can't really think about anything because we've got to decide, we've got to have all these internal discussions around what we're going to do in relation to the outcome of the referendum. So everybody's scenario planning in terms of what-ifs, and you could say that's very sensible. But you can see that it becomes a technical thing then, that there's a kind of, well, we need to know what we're going to say if this happens. We're going to need to know what we're going to do if this happens. And and it's become a kind of like threat hanging over as though they've got no control over it. It's like the sort of, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the date for it. I mean, that's Cameron's fault. I mean, it feels just like this said, is it going to be June the 23rd? Is it not? Can we know? I mean, it's sort of, what's the mystery? Somebody decide, announce the date so we can get on with it. But I'm just making the point that it's preoccupying people and organisations, people in very senior positions and, you know, everyone from trade unions through to political parties to big business to small business, what will happen, but not substantially preoccupying them in terms of the arguments on it, so it's just technical. Just on the the spokespeople, I mean, I have to commend Dan Hannan, I have to say, for being everywhere and anywhere, but on the other hand, you do feel like it's Dan Hannan everywhere and anywhere, and the only person who's saying anything coherent is Dan Hannan, and there has to be more than Dan Hannan in this debate. And I can't remember her name, but the Labour MP, Kate Hoey, sorry, um, Kate Hoey has also been on that trail, but it's kind of Kate Hoey, Dan Hannan, and that's kind of the political imagination restricted to Kate Hoey and Dan Hannan with a bit of Farage and UKIP over there. In other words, it hasn't encaptured or involved masses of, of people, even in the political parties. That's the point I'm making. It's just It just feels too narrow um, and, and too, too few people involved in it. I think from the Institute of Ideas point of view, by the way, I mean, certainly we you know, stand in a tradition of being completely pro-European and cosmopolitan, but very uh, critical, and not just critical, but anti the EU in terms of its anti-democratic nature. And so you want to counter that idea that if you're anti-EU, you're anti-European. But from the point of view of the Institute of Ideas, I think what we need to do is to work out the key political issues we should be talking about and maybe doing some special podcasts to kind of almost act as some briefings for people to just kind of recommend readings, think about the issues in the build-up to it and try and come up with some positive contribution to this rather than even just me now moaning that it's not good enough. We probably ought to contribute something in that way in the forthcoming months. You, you mentioned not knowing what's going to happen and that segues nicely into the US elections. So after a sort of great head of steam around Donald Trump and people endlessly speculating about why you know, millions of Republicans, at least, are prepared to vote for a man widely regarded as an idiot, he came second in Iowa in the first round of the nomination process. Not a huge surprise. I think Ted Cruz was always supposed to win that one anyway. But what do we think about the debate that's going on around Trump 
and more broadly as well, because you know, in, in, on the Democrat side, Hillary Clinton, who was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a coronation, uh, it's was it basically in a dead heat with Bernie Sanders. So, what's going on there? I mean, well, let's start with Trump. I mean, what, what do we think about the, the Trump phenomenon? Well, I think overall the story of of both sides is actually the kind of collapse of two of the greatest political machines that you, you know, has ever been known, which is the Democrats and the Republican Party, is that actually both sides don't have any real sort of sense of control over what's happening here. There have been sort of some wild cards. And while there have been insurgents before, um, you can sort of really see that this is kind of making quite a big impact. Now, the thing with Trump is that it's obviously kind of, you know, it's kind of entertaining to watch. But the main thing about him is he doesn't represent anyone. You know, he is a very wealthy person who can stand outside of um, any of the elites and basically say anything to get him attention. It's, there is no coherent political stance to, to what he's doing on any kind of issue. You can't even straightforwardly say that he is kind of hard right or kind of proto-fascist or kind of anything like that. He sort of will shift his been a democrat before he's a republican now he's kind of captured that anti-political mood um, perfectly and a kind of rage against political correctness but he's almost he's not even really i, th- I think like a populist in anything there's something a bit more anti-political about what he's doing i i get a bit concerned by that i suppose partly because you know ted cruz is the one who is frightened but you know he's the kind of evangelical tea party hard right can- candidate who has kind of now been sort of forced himself even further to the right kind of to, to match trump really um and the winner of that is probably going to be the centrist candidate who everyone before the election thought was going to be jeb bush so it was going to be another bush versus clinton probably now looks like it's going to be rubio um who's kind of young Latin American kind of you know was is it a bit to the right but kind of enough to the right to appeal to uh, some of the people who've been a bit, a bit dismayed by Ted Cruz. So on the one hand, I want to kind of cheer the sort of sentiments of you know Trump kind of kicking against the pricks and kind of causing chaos. But I think the other hand, actually, I think it's a bit it is a bit sad that this kind of election is being dominated by somebody who is represents no one and doesn't have to kind of represent anyone, and that is kind of ultimately going to I think further disenfranchise the you know the kind of american right i think it's going to lead to more and more splintering and also now at the same time it's interesting that you know democrats don't really know what to do about the sanders effect who is kind of a bit like corbyn is a kind of old throwback to a kind of you know a sort of more kind of blue collar democrat thing but very popular with students clinton is you know the, you can see that people have been worried there's lots of talk about bloomberg entering the race which i think is just chatter but i think really sort of suggests that amongst sort of sophisticated liberal circles they're worried that clinton is not the person to back and the, and you know perhaps there's just a hope that he will come in and split the sanders vote enough to just kind of get hillary over the line um and you sort of see that there is a lot of a, a sort of sense of um how do we manage this kind of democratic wave in a way that I think will just lead to even more problems further down the line. You know, it's just a kind of sort of sense of both sides just trying to do what works and to just maintain a bit of stability. Yeah, so I I think that Sanders and Trump, for their respective political machines, are more than just outliers. They do represent a loss of control of those machines by the people at the heart of those machines, in as much as they weren't expecting either of those two people to emerge. So in this, in a way that they are both represent that unraveling. Sanders is just, you know, dull as dishwater in many ways, and it's hard to when people sort of say, you know, he's to the, 
I always think, God, it's so tragic from somebody who's from the left to have everybody that anyone mentions as the left being so dull and boring, you know. God, could you just think there's not much life there? But anyway, at least he's political and you know where you stand. I mean, it's a bit, in that sense, like Corbyn, I can have an argument, I can kind of get it. And I think that the difficulty for those of us who are interested in politics is that Trump is, you know, he isn't, it's not that he has right-wing views. I don't, you know, he has any view that he wanders into you know, having had a chat with himself, and I mean, you know, that's, I'm making all the anti-Trump jokes, but you do feel as though it's arbitrary. He's certainly, you know, no Christian conservative, is he? You know, this is a man who's kind of like a reality TV star playing it out in politics, and so that is of concern. A couple of other things just to note, which is, I think it is significant that his rage against political correctness, as Dave said, his anti-PC stuff, actually has a wide resonance. And I think I find that relatively gratifying because I the whole atmosphere of political correctness and you can't say that society in America is, is pernicious and been so destructive of public debate and politics. And, and I think that he his refusal to play that game, at least, and the support for that is, is positive, not because of what he says... And I don't even think when you hear people interviewed that it's what he says that they respect. It's the fact that he said it when everybody said you can't say it and then refuses to apologise. That's a positive side of him. And I think the sort of sense of him not being owned by anyone, which we can say, you know, represents an anti-politics trend. But I think it's because people do want politicians who are not owned by people. And I think there's, I mean, they want to believe that politicians mean what they're saying. And in that sense, even though he talks rubbish, they feel he's not owned by anyone in the sense of being dictated to. Now, you can say he's not being dictated to by ideas and principles and ideology, which is problematic. But the carefully manicured American political elite, people are fed up of, and so am I. So I kind of have some regard for that too. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's very important to separate criticisms of Donald Trump you know he stood up and he he's got to put, to stand or fall by the the quality of his arguments and his ideas of which there seem to be either some very dubious ideas or none at all as you say it's like you know, comes out with whatever's in his head it should be on loose women or something because just like you know we'll just react to things but the criticism of trump supporters i think is uh, is is very sort of um problematic because there's clearly a real desperation for some kind of change in America. America really feels stuck. Yeah, and the, you know, it is stuck economically in particular. There isn't a sense of America going forward in the same way that it was maybe in the 60s and you know, for a, a little sort of revival in the 90s. Um, that there, there isn't any sense that, that things, things are going to get any better and that things are just sort of seeping away. So, of course, there is a desperation amongst American voters to hold the elites to account for that and to find somebody who is not a member of the elites very clearly to uh, to try and do something about it. I, I think they're, they're backing the wrong horse with Don- Donald, but uh, as you say, he has those characteristics of just not being one of them, very, very sort of like annoys all their sort of sensibilities and can't be owned by anybody. I think as well that we can't underestimate that he more than any other candidate really threatens the in any kind of internal coherence for the Republican Party. So the Tea Party was a challenge in its day, um, although and it kind of manifests itself. But I think with 
Trump. I mean, I've never seen so many articles written by the conservative right in America discussing themselves. They're having an existential crisis through the discussion about what's happened, how how has Trump emerged in any way as a serious candidate. There's all sorts of, like, problematic things emerging, like this this kind of notion of the alt-right, as it's called, the sort of extreme right who 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 really are you know anti-semitic right wing they're actually quite young anti-social justice warriors um uh, uh, um kind of explicitly there's all sorts of problems in relation to them but anyway whatever they are they're kind of real trump supporters and you, you can then see sort of some quite people i consider to be you know pretty you know hard right wingers going oh my god we, we don't want to be associated with these alt-right people who are supporting trump and how did this happen and what can we do? And then the concern about the fact that Palin can kind of come in and be completely incoherent and gather some people together. It just means that if what the, the, the sort of fine tradition of republicanism, if I can put it that way, not that I've ever been a supporter, but their idea of having a moral purpose, the Republican Party, obviously arguing over candidates, they suddenly think, oh, we're morally empty, vacuous, got nothing there. Yeah. What does it all mean? And obviously he is not a moral candidate in the sense of the, you know, the way the Republicans like to see themselves. This is this is the geezer with the kind of, you know, models on the arm type thing. And they're, they're just embarrassed about him. But I think, it, in other words, there is, he, he just represents or embodies what is actually a serious crisis for that political party. Like the Brexit discussion, we will have to come come back to this many times over the course of this year as as things play out. And and obviously, we we always have to be careful about assuming too much because uh, you know there is there's been many instances of the, this kind of outsider candidates before kind of coming and going um, rather rapidly um, as people sort of shift and the elites kind of get behind somebody. So we'll see whether that someone is going to be Rubio and whether that makes any difference or not. As a final item, I wanted to uh, talk about this comment by England's chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davis. Now, she's she'd already released some alcohol guidelines a couple of weeks ago, um, which were like shockingly low, uh, basically suggesting it's very dangerous to drink at all. But you know, we think we should allow you a little bit. And b- before Christmas, was talking about obesity as a bigger threat than terrorism. So her latest contribution to our Commons Committee was this. Um, she said, I would like to like people to take their choice, knowing the issues, and do as I do when I reach for my glass of wine. Think, do I want the glass of wine, or do I want to raise my risk of breast cancer? And I take a decision each time I have a glass. Which kind of says something really terrible about the people who run public health in the, the UK, because... They're so obviously divorced from the way that normal people think that you know, the first thing that should be on your mind is you know this this glass of wine could potentially give you cancer, and it's not just a, a British problem. Uh, as we've discovered this week, the uh, the Centers for Disease C- Control in in America have warned women, not just pregnant women, not to drink, which is bad enough, but anyone, any woman who's not using contraception should not drink either, just in case they get pregnant. So, yeah, there, there is no sort of satisfaction to their kind of, their thinking. Once you become completely health obsessed and, and worry about every little potential risk, then that just informs everything and any sort of pleasure which a normal person would take from things uh, seems to be completely absent from the thinking of public health people. I I only I haven't much to add because it's so, you know, shockingly 
anti-scientific as well. I mean, it's worth noting. But I think that I smoke, and it's undoubtedly the case that, you know, when you smoke, you're aware that this is something that might call, you know, end up in emphysema or lung cancer. And that's not, you know, that's not an exaggeration that it might do in your chances. But you don't also, every time you have a cigarette, like, stop like that. Not because you're an idiot, but because life's too short to be constantly concerned with one's own mortality. On occasion, because I get a bit paranoid about this, stand at the side of, you know, when the tube's coming in really fast and think, oh, wouldn't it be horrible to fall down there and die, right? But, you know, it happens occasionally in a morbid moment. And every time I get the tube, I don't think that. Or every time I get on a plane, I don't think of crashes. And every time I get in it, and so on and so forth, right? Because you would drive yourself mad. So you've got a number of things in relation to this. One is, is that there is no direct connection between drinking wine and breast cancer. So it's completely irresponsible for her to suggest that that's what we should all think. Any possible health downside of, of of drinking is far more complicating than she should uh, she suggests. But anyway, there are upsides and downsides of every single human activity that c- creates pleasure, um, if done in excess or if done, you know, and so on and so forth. And I actually have noticed that there is some embarrassment in public health circles about her, and that she's been subject to quite a fair bit of ridicule. We were just talking about Trump a minute ago. You know, brave Trump. You know, now he's whinging that he came second and he says that, that everyone was cheating. And it's like even his own people are embarrassed. I, I only say that because I've also seen with Dame Sally Davis, there's quite a lot of jokes about her from people who are actually usually the kind of public health brigade as sort of a bit embarrassed and like, oh, Sally, get a life, right? So, you know, there's there's a bit of a reaction to her. But actually... What she is saying is actually public health policy. She just says it boldly. She just takes it to the extreme. But and, and so even though people might be embarrassed by her, she represents what we're up against in terms of taking on people who would have us only imagine our lives should be uh, safety first. And what she also illustrates is, going back to our first discussion, is that well, you know, I, I, I would say that I would vote to leave the EU because I think it's a terribly undemocratic body. But it, leaving the EU, despite what some people say, is not going to solve the problem of democracy because, as we can see, with the likes of Sally Davis, is actually a lot of domestic decisions and domestic policy making is being taken out of the hands of politicians more and more. I have no right to vote her out. I have no uh, say in alcohol guidelines or the way in which GPs are going to like be paid to weigh me. Which is the other thing that came out this week: give me advice on my weight and send me off to a diet club if you know if I, my BMI is too high. All that kind of stuff has been taken out of the hands of politicians and put into the hands of experts like Sally Davis, so-called experts. And so while. We have a big dis- discussion to have about democracy uh, around the EU debate. I it would be great if that was a bit broader as well and, and have a discussion about the fact that that's only part of the solution. And on that happy note, we'll call it a day there. So thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you uh, enjoyed it and would like to find out more about our podcasts or subscribe to them, please visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>